0: Okay, so friends, today we are continuing in our sermon series, the book of Proverbs. We're currently on the fourth section of this wisdom literature, and in the past three sermons, in the past three sections through the book of Proverbs, Solomon, the author, has made us think a lot about what wisdom is, right? Let me just summarize it. Uh, The first section, he uh, uh, helped us see, he described wisdom as this ability to live in reality, this ability to know how the world works, based on God, the creator, to view life that way, and therefore arrange our lives according to God's reality on earth, that's that's wisdom. Two, he described wisdom as being involved in a wise community, because your ecosystem really affects your growth in wisdom. And then in the third section of the book, he talks about how wisdom is living humbly, Remember that? Well, you've you got to be able to learn from your mistakes. You've got to be able to be humble enough to, to, to tweak your life based on consequences you experience. And in our passage today, what Solomon does, he does he switches gears a little bit, and instead of giving us an additional definition of what wisdom is, he instead kind of stops in his uh, track of ex- explaining things to us. And what he does is he asks us, look, now that you've thought about wisdom a lot for the past three Sundays, tell me. Have you actually grown wiser? Because apparently, thinking about wisdom isn't the same as actually growing in wisdom. Thinking about wisdom, Solomon's saying here, is much like drawing out the blueprint of a fort. A fort is like, like a benteng, right? You're drawing it out, you know, on a, on a piece of paper. You jot down the measurements. You, you uh, line up the lines. You trace the shape. You pencil out each section, which is a very necessary step if you're going to make a fort. But no matter how good your blueprint is, unless you actually build a fort, right, unless you actually make the fort itself, you won't have anything that will protect you from evil. You see? Thinking about wisdom is much like that. Here in this room, all we can do is open the Bible, talk about wisdom, think about wisdom, meditate on wisdom, map it out, trace out the blueprints in our minds. But someone who's satisfied with just thoughts of wisdom is much like someone who feels safe at war because they have a blueprint of a fort in their pocket. It won't help them. The blueprint won't do anything. What you need is an actual fort. What you need is actual wisdom. Okay, so then, what is actual wisdom? How do you build it? How how can we materialize the conceptual blueprint of wisdom that we've been tracing out through the book of Proverbs this whole time, and actually create something that'll shield us from evil today? Well, that's what our passage is all about. So let's jump into it. This is God's word. Take it from Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 to 22. It's a long one, so stick with me as I read it out. And it's about how to build actual, not just theoretical, but actual practical wisdom. This is the word of God. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding... Yes, if you call out for insight, if you raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you'll understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you'll understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you, understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil. From men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness, to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil, and delight in the perverseness of evil. Men whose paths are crooked, and who are devious in their ways, So you'll be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death, and her paths to the departed. None who go to to her come back, nor do they regain the path of life. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it but the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. Thus says the Lord. There are three things about the person who's growing in actual wisdom that I want to point out from this passage. First, a person growing in actual wisdom see character forging as God's shield. Second, they aim to acquire a godly palate. And third, they will not be uprooted from the land. Okay? Start with the first point. Someone who's growing an actual, practical, functional wisdom will see character forging as God's shield. So, if you were with us last week, then you might remember that wisdom, in our previous passage, wisdom was described as being the active one in the relationship, Right? You remember that? Remember what wisdom was doing in the last passage? She was calling out to us, Solomon says. She was raising her voice out at at us. She was the one seeking us out. In other words, she was doing all the work. But now, look at who Solomon's saying should be doing some of the work too. Look at verses three to four. If you call out for insight, he says, if you raise your voice for understanding, Who's gonna do some of the work as well? We do. So the tables are kind of turned here in our passage. In order to get wisdom, Solomon's saying here, you can't just passively listen to wisdom. You must call out. You must raise your voice. You must seek it actively. Count, by the way, how many if-then phrases that you see in verses one to four. Look at verse one. Solomon says, if you receive my words... Verse three, if you call out for insight. Verse four, if you seek wisdom like silver, which means molded, molded material. If, 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 okay? Verse five, then you'll fear the Lord. Verse nine, then you understand righteousness, justice, and equity. This if, then pattern is what's called a conditional clause, okay? Meaning, that there's a condition to it. If you do, then you'll get. The only way is for you to actually do something. What is this about? It's like this. You can listen to podcasts about swimming all year long. Right? But until you actually jump into a body of water that's deeper than your height and try to swim you will never develop the necessary skills to survive from drowning. You can read all the books about driving that you want, but unless you actually get behind the wheel of a car a few times and try to apply what you read, you won't develop the necessary skills to survive incoming traffic. You can attend all the leadership conferences that you want, but until you've actually led a team with real human beings in it, you won't know how to shape a staff culture and how to lead a team. If then, you can't just listen, hear, passively. Okay, but with things like swimming, driving, leadership, you know there are at least manual books for them, right? There are classes to attend, there are podcasts to listen to, there are books to read as starting points to then apply and build up from. But what's the manual book for wisdom? Well, let's go to verse six. Look at verse six, Solomon there says, for the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. The manual book for wisdom is God's word, the Bible. Okay, I'm starting to get there, but it's still a bit unclear. Like, how does that work exactly? With swimming, you know, I get it, right? You read some instructions about swimming, you get a coach, then you jump in a pool, you make some mistakes, you read again, and the coach corrects you, then you jump back in the pool. But but with wisdom, like h- how does that work? Well, much the same. Much the same. When I first got married to Tati, I approached marriage very 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 pragmatically. Okay? For me, marriage was all about partnering for gospel mission and that was it and i've shared this story before but in our first period of counseling you know uh the, the counselor asked me tez why do you want to marry tati and i listed out all these reasons like because she makes disciples she loves the lord she wants to go on mission da, 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 da. and brian lewis the counselor said do you want a wife or do you want to hire a staff person because I was very pragmatic about it, and at that point, I was led back to the manual. I was led back to the Bible, Genesis chapter two, where I was introduced to the idea of marriage as oneness. Not just pragmatism, but oneness, intimacy to be the goal, because Adam and Eve in Genesis two was what? One, flesh. The, The KPI, the goal, is oneness of heart and soul. So I tried doing that, but it was really, really hard. Because in order to do that, I had to speak a whole other language, I had to speak heart. And see, I don't speak heart, I speak brain. So, a lot of sacrifice was involved. A lot of giving up of personal preferences, especially when it comes to communication styles. Which is something the manual tells me to do, right? Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, you must what? Sacrifice for your wife, lay down your preferences and your rights as Christ of the church, so I persevered on, I tried to live out Ephesians 5, but I didn't even do quite that right either. I struggled there, because my version of sacrifice back then is what I now call avoidant suppression. I just kind of suppressed all the frustration and the hurts and the wrongs that I felt all in here to avoid conflict, and I thought I was doing Ephesians 5 right. You know, don't say anything, just suck it all up, lay down your rights, Christ carried cross for you, you can't even do this Look, crybaby, Which, is there some value to such grit? Of course there is. Maybe. But see, the way I did it, it wasn't right. It led to a lot of internal resentment. A lot of external sacrifice, but a lot of hidden internal resentment that actually hurt the marriage because all these hidden resentments aren't as hidden as we think they are, are they? Which is when I learned that the sacrifices I made for the marriage perhaps wasn't for the marriage at all. Perhaps it was for the sake of me avoiding arguments. Because if it was really for the marriage, then I'll do whatever it takes to make true peace in the marriage, not keep the peace at the expense of the marriage. You see the difference? And you know, when I learned the difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking, it's the manual, Matthew chapter 5. Remember what Jesus said in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the, what, peacekeepers? No. Blessed are the peacemakers. Not the conflict avoiders, but the conflict killers. There's a big difference, you know. And then I tried doing that right, and I'll stop there, because I can go on forever. Forever. But this intertwined dance that I described just now between marriage and the Bible, the failing of making mistakes, going back to the manual, that's what wisdom materializing looks like. And now because of that, if you ask Tati, she'll say I'm the wisest husband that's ever lived. <laughs> Don't ask her, actually. You know, it's, it, with athletics, you know, with uh, professional development, with any other with academics, with, with any other um, career we have, we understand that practice makes perfect. But for some reason, when it comes to Christian life, we don't. Why is it when it comes to Christian life, we think if I can just be prayed over by the right person, if I can just fast at the right time, if I can just read the right verse, if I can just be baptized at the right location, I'll somehow magically grow. No. Practice makes perfect in the Christian life as well, if then, don't over-spiritualize Christianity to where it turns into mysticism. This isn't mysticism. This forged character of applied wisdom is God's way of protecting you, Solomon continues. Look at verse 7. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. This integrity that you forge is your shield, but take a look at that verse closer with me one more time. What or who does verse 7 actually say shields the wise man? He is the shield. Who's he? God. Well, that's weird. So does does my integrity shield and protect me? Or does God shield and protect me? Well, it's both. Your forged integrity is God's protection. When the godly character you've forged your whole life makes you say no to certain foolish decisions, when the forged integrity you've shaped your whole life makes you say no to certain sins and evils, that is God protecting you. That is how God watches over his saints, verse eight continues. Show me someone whose character trajectory is moving toward godliness and I'll show you someone who's being protected under the wings of the Almighty. The wise man views character forging as God's shield. But that's not all. Solomon continues to say here that the wise man, or woman, who continues to forge godly character by trying to apply God's word in their life will find that if they keep going, their godly character will eventually morph Further into something better still. Let's go to our second point. The person growing in wisdom aims to acquire a godly palate. Let's let's move on to verse ten. We see here that if you keep forging this godly character, if you keep keep if thening right, keep doing, keep actively screaming out, calling out for wisdom, applying, doing, going. Eventually, your your character will turn to something else. Look at what Solomon says in verse ten. This wisdom will eventually come into your heart and be pleasant to your soul. Now what does that mean, for something to be pleasant to your soul? It means that it's reached your internal palate. What's a palate? One's palate is their taste buds. It's the thing that determines whether or not something tastes yummy or yucky to you. Okay, now how does this godly palate differ from godly character? Well, it's it's similar. But the difference is, a godly character merely gives you the willpower to fight evil, whereas a godly palate would actually make you find evil to be yucky. You see the difference? You ever had dinner with someone who doesn't like chocolate? I have, and it's the most frustrating thing I've ever experienced. I love you, I just don't love the fact that you don't love chocolate. (laughs) You know, because here I am, after a full meal, using every ounce of discipline I have to not order anything from the dessert menu. And you're there sitting going, I'm good. And I'm looking at you like, how do you not like sugar? Like, you heathen, that is opposite to natural law. (laughs) Anyways, someone with a godly palate, they won't just have this willpower to resist evil, they would actually find sin and evil repulsive. They won't want it to begin with in the taste buds of their soul, which then, kind of, yes, does make the rejection process a little bit easier. And it's important for you to develop wisdom in the pleasantries of your soul, not just in the willpower of your character. It's really important because some evils, Solomon continues here, some evils out there, are just too tasty. They're too tasty for your willpower to fight with good character alone. There are some evils out there that if you face them without having yet developed a godly palate, you'll probably lose. What evils? Well, Solomon mentions at least two. The man with perverted speech in verse 13 and the forbidden woman in verse 16. What's that about? Let's start with the man of perverted speech. This man is a man who's forsaken the path of uprightness, verse 14 says. This is a man whose path is crooked. Now the imagery here isn't just that his path is windy, but it's crooked, bent all the way back to himself. This is a man who prioritizes personal gain over things like righteousness, justice, and equity that was mentioned in verse six. And most commentaries I consult agree that this is mainly in reference to money. could be other things, but getting money over justice, righteousness, and equity. That's one. The second evil mention here is a forbidden woman. What's that about? Well, the Hebrew word for forbidden here is probably best translated to foreign. She, she's a foreigner in that no one really knows her. She doesn't stay long enough to be known, to commit. An adulterer, verse 16 says, and this is an allusion to sexual deviance outside of marriage. The love of money and sexual deviance. Now, the love of money, bail, and sexual adultery is also used in the Bible to describe the concept of sin in general, right? Like, we're cheating on God with Baal, with the love of money. So some have argued that this doesn't actually refer to these two sins specifically, but just to sin in general, and I, and I do kind of agree with that, but I also do think there's an emphasis here to these two vermin, at the same time. And you've seen this play out, haven't you? Have you ever seen men and women who have really good godly character? And I mean like really godly character, not fake godly. They, they don't just look holy, they actually have good character, you know? People who possess an armor of true integrity fall prey to the allure of of sexual deviance and love of money. You ever seen that? I have. Way too many times. Why? Because some sins are just so mouth-watering. It's not enough for your character to just grit against it. Your soul must acquire a palate that finds them to be unpleasant. Unpleasant. And right now, my assumption is, many of us might find the love of money and sexual deviance to be things worth fighting against, but I'm not sure how many of us have gone to a point where our souls actually find them to be unpleasant. We're not yet as scared of them like we need to be. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says that the wise man will see that these are the things they must be delivered from. They're dangerous things. Deliver me from them. These are the things that will drag our homes, verse 18 says. In in other words, it'll drag everything that we love down into a sinkhole. That's how you know that your soul has found the love of money and sexual deviance unpleasant. It's when you encounter them and your knee-jerk reaction is utter Fear. This might be a helpful summary. If you come across the opportunity for unjust gain and sexual deviance of any sort and you think to yourself, that's ah, fine, you know, it's just, just this one time, it's okay, then you're a fool. But if you come across those two things and you go, I'm not gonna do it, I'm gonna resist, I'm gonna fight it, then you have Godly character. But if you encounter those two things and you go, nope, I'm out. I'm done, I'm out, not for me, nope, and you just, you go. Then you have a godly palate. Where are we? Not maybe with these two sins alone, but with any, any sin in our life. We're all in the process, okay? It's okay, however you're struggling, forward trajectory is what you're looking for right? Keep struggling. Keep forging practical wisdom. Keep cultivating a godly palate. And if you're struggling through that, I'm not, I'm not too worried for you. What I'm mostly worried about are people who aren't struggling at all. That's what I'm worried about. Look, if you don't find yourself struggling against sin, I don't think your lack of struggle is a sign of victory, Because no one on this side of eternity has arrived, right? We're all a work in progress. We all know that. So then why don't you feel like you're struggling? Not because you've won, but maybe it's because you've stopped fighting. You've given up. You're not at peace because you've reached the other end of the storm. You're at peace because you're letting the wind take you wherever it pleases. And these are the people, Solomon's warning at the end of the passage today. Let's go to the last point. Those growing in wisdom will not be uprooted from the land. Verse 22, Solomon closes by saying, for the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked, he says, will be rooted out of it. The idea here is that there's a wind of God's judgment uprooting you from the land of life. Who are the wicked? The wicked are the ones who's laid down and given up. They're the ones who are allowing the wind and the waves carry them to and fro, who then become, like the two people mentioned just now, people who entice gullible fools into their schemes. In other words, the wicked eventually become the wind and the wave that carry others away from righteousness, justice, and equity. That's the wicked. And Solomon's here saying, beware. If this is you, you will be cut off from the land. And the land here refers to life itself because back then if you didn't have land, you didn't have food, you didn't have food, you would die. So land here means life but I also feel like or think it primarily refers to not just life on earth, but eternal life. Like you'll be cut off from God's promised land. And why do I think that? Because the land here, uh, the land here primarily refers to God's eternal promised land instead of current earthly lands because, well, most of the time, the wicked are the ones who actually own most of the current earthly lands. Aren't they? Not always, Okay? Wealth and poverty does not determine righteousness. But it is a big theme in the Old Testament that the wicked, due to their lack of conscience, do often end up with a bigger piece of the pie. If this is you, heed God's warning. Do not be fooled, Solomon saying. All of your money all of your sexual exploitations might protect you from certain earthly plights today. But in actuality, you're completely shieldless. You're defenseless. You may feel strong and protected, but you have got no shield to guard you from what's coming, which is the wind of God's wrath that'll blow you away and uproot you from the land of life altogether. It's not a possibility. It's a sure warning. But see, the thing is, we already know all that, don't we? We know that. We know that if we keep loving and doing things that are not of God, we'll be in trouble. This isn't new information. We've known this our whole lives. But for some reason no matter how hard we try no matter how hard we fight there're just certain sins in our life that won't seem to unlatch itself from the palate of our soul it just won't go we've seared our spiritual taste buds for too long and our palates way too habitualized to certain ungodly flavors so we think to ourselves it's too late now it's too late. What's the point of forging shields this late in the game? Some sins I'll probably fight, but I, I don't know if I'll naturally hate them. You know, my soul may never find them distasteful. I'm just always going to love them. And it's just hard to not view myself, there's so many of them, it's just hard to not view myself as one of the ones who'll be blown out of the land. If that's you, don't lose hope. Here's what's interesting. In the Bible, if you read it, you will find that there's this one man who had a really strong shield. You'll find that there's this one man who has forged a flawless, godly character and palate. He was sinless, the Bible says. Who's this person? Jesus. And if anyone in the Bible would have had a shield strong enough to escape the wind of God's righteousness and justice, who would it be? It'd be him. But yet, if you read a story, for some reason, on the cross, what we saw is that we saw him get utterly crushed by God's righteous wind and justice. He got, he got crushed under its weight. Why? Why does that happen to him? He was righteous, I thought. Why? Because the Bible says he was trying to shield you. He was shielding you. He gave the shield that he forged his whole life, his perfect, flawless shield, to you. And that made him vulnerable to the wind of God's righteousness. And justice that should have blown you and I out of the land. Isaiah 53 He was pierced for our transgression, he was crushed for our iniquities. The Christian is the person who realizes that they could never forge a shield strong enough on their own. And then runs to the cross, falls into worship under the shadow of this crucified Savior as they see God shield them from the wrath to come. That's the Christian. You don't avoid being blown away from the land with your own shield, but with Jesus's. That's the whole point of the Bible. The cross, he's the blueprint. He is the beginning of wisdom. And if you want to actually build up from it so that you would have practical wisdom that'll further protect you from mouth-watering sins, then open up that blueprint often. Read it. Practice this gospel in your day-to-day situations. Tweak, edit, grow. Forge a character that'll guard you. Develop a palette that'll protect you. But most importantly, please, always, 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 in it, see the one who died to shield you. I hope you will. That's the only way we would ever grow wise.